You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Go ahead and tell someone the title of my sermon this morning, The Breaking of Bread. The Breaking of Bread. We are in the middle of our vision casting series where we have been looking at the culture of the early church, the Acts chapter 2 early church. Instead of, uh, instead of going to our mission statement of reach, revolve, and reflect, we are looking at the, the culture of the, the first church, the church that was started by Christ and, and, and conducted by the apostles, and see what the culture that they had, practices that they had, so that we can apply it to our own lives, but also in our church context here, uh, in hopes that we would see growth not just spiritually, but numerically, and not just, uh, just, not just individually, but corporately as a body of Christ. We looked at the, the things that they were devoted to. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to four things. To the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. They devoted themselves. We saw how in the original Greek that meant to persevere in, to persist. In. They intentionally sought after these things. And in the first week, we looked at the apostles' teachings and what that meant. What they were devoted to in the apostles' teaching was specifically the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the salvific narrative of Scripture, and of course, uh, as well as holiness, the response to the gospel. The gospel is what separates the church from any other world religion. It's the message that makes us distinct from any other faiths. And, it's a, and a key part to that message of knowing that we are sinners in need of a Savior is repentance. That is a key part to the gospel and our response to the gospel. That results into a devotion to holiness. And that holiness is what sets us apart from the rest of the world, what makes us counter-cultural, as the title of our series is. Now, the emphasis for us in our modern day for the apostles' teaching is to read God's Word, because this is the legacy of the apostles. We get the apostles' teaching from the New Testament, from the Gospels and the, the Epistles. In the second week, last week, we, all, we also talked about the fellowship, which was the word in Greek, if you guys remember, koinonia. Koinonia, and we understood that this idea of fellowship goes beyond just socialization, hanging out, and having fun together. It goes beyond that, but true community, it's talking about true community that is unlike the world, that is centered on love and demonstrated by serving one another. The goal is to edify one another and us being present and participating in the household of God, the church. Now, in the world of individualization and, and personal relationship and our own faith and our own truth, this is absolutely countercultural. Because understand, we are gathering here this morning not just for ourselves, but for the benefit of the person sitting next to us. So that we can edify the brother or the sister that is uh, in the same room with us, so that we can serve one another and together. That is the true idea of fellowship, of koinonia. Now this week, we'll be looking at the third practice that we see in that passage in Acts chapter 2, and that is the idea of breaking bread, the breaking of bread. This is the, this is the favorite topic of all Baptists, right? Food, breaking bread, sharing a meal together. I love what it says here in Acts chapter 2, verse 46. It says, and day by day, they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. They sound like Baptists to me, right? Something about food just really brings people together. The enjoying of a meal and talking with one another and sharing stories from old times and celebrating achievements and sharing hardships over a tub of ice cream together. That's, there's something that draws people together in breaking bread and sharing meals together. It brings people together. In fact, there's been studies of this. Uh, did you know that married couples who eat together are 67% more happier than married couples who don't eat together, who don't share meals? Here's, here's another one. Did you know that kids 
who are in homes that regularly have a family dinner together, just dinner, all right, that regularly have family dinner together, kids, those kids are better academically, they have higher self-esteem, they have greater sense of resilience, they have a lower risk of substance abuse, they have a lower risk of teen pregnancy, a lower risk of depression, a lower likelihood of developing eating disorders, a lower likelihood of, of obesity, there's just something about sharing meals and breaking bread together, uh, sort of like a common grace that God has given to humanity who he's designed for relationship that, that just over a meal, a simple meal, can build and develop these relationships and strengthen them, these bonds. See, breaking bread and sharing meals is a, it's a, is a huge theme in Scripture, in fact. We see throughout, uh, throughout the New and Old Testament, the, the, the Jewish festivals all re revolved around some sort of meal, breaking bread together. There is always a, a, there is a, always a call to share food with, with those who have none, those who are uh, unfortunate to have no, uh, no food. In the Gospel of Luke alone, Luke writes down or, or describes how Jesus, there's 10 specific meals that Jesus uh, conducted in his ministry, that his ministry revolved around, just in the Gospel of Luke. One of the first things that Christ does with the church when he returns in the book of Revelation, Revelation 19, is a meal, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So uh, a huge feast for the believer is when Christ returns. And so we see all throughout Scripture that sharing food together, breaking bread together, is, is central to, to the themes in Scripture. And really what we get from that is that Sharing meals, the breaking of bread, is a core practice of the people of God. It's a core practice of the people of God. And no wonder the early church was very much devoted to such a task, to devoted to such a practice. Yet, sharing average meals, I don't think, is really what made them counterculture. It's not what set them apart. Uh, just having a common, again, like I said, it's a common grace. Even unbelievers share meals. It's something that every human being enjoys with one another. It's, it's rather what they celebrated in those meals that set them apart. See, the idea, the phrasing of the breaking of bread was very specific. It's wording that recalls the Last Supper and the institution of the Lord's table, which we understand to be communion. Communion. The early church shared meals together, but in each of these meals, they celebrated communion. They took, they, they took a portion out of that meal to commemorate the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, the sacrifice that united them together as believers. It's why Paul, in our main passage in 1 Corinthians, even rebukes the Corinthian church. He says in verse 20, when you come together, it's not for the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. The rebuke that Paul is giving is because instead of coming together and sharing a meal together, and at the same time commemorating the Lord's table, communion, partaking in communion together, there was no unity. It was disjointed. And you had people simply eating their own meals and Again, as it said, people getting drunk when they're supposed to be participating in this Lord's table together. The example from the early church, at least in the book of Acts, is that believers demonstrated a devotion, an unrelenting persistence towards, perseverance towards this gathering of breaking of bread and, and participating in the Lord's table. They came together daily. They broke bread and, and, and had meals together on a daily basis, all in an effort to practice communion, to commemorate the sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, it united them. It built their relationships. That's what made them countercultural. In the same way, the Lord's table, communion, ought to be our distinctive as a local community, as a local body of Christ. It's not, it's, it's not just a matter of whether or not we do it once a month, but whenever we do it, whenever we gather even in our homes and, and fellowship with brothers and sisters and share a meal with brothers and sisters, it ought to be a, a, an aspect to our fellowship, an aspect to our breaking of bread. 
That's what would make us counterculture. And so the hope for us this morning is to dive deeper into the significance of the Lord's table so that we can better understand it, better understand from Scripture what we believe about it, but also look at how our attitude ought to be whenever we come to communion, whenever we come to the Lord's table, or even share a meal with family and friends. That's the way that, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning in our sermon. And the way that we're going to approach this sermon is to Fold. First, we're going to have a teaching portion, uh, and then we're going to have a preaching portion. The teaching portion is, I want to just quickly look at and discuss the various views on this idea of, or this practice, the church practice of communion, or in some traditions called the Eucharist. I think it's important to know what we practice, but also why we practice it, so that when we see these other traditions practicing a similar, uh, a similar task, that we can call out whether or not they are faithfully practicing or biblically practicing the, the ordinance or uh, if it's, it's coded with, with heresy and, and lies even. And of course, we're going to look at it practically. We're going to see how we can apply um, an attitude, a good attitude towards approaching the Lord's table um, the, the communion table. Is that, is, is that okay with everyone? We're going to have a teaching portion of this and a preaching portion to this, okay? So to begin, let's look at four views on communion, or, or again, as some traditions call it, the Eucharist. There are four views that are commonly held by uh, the Christian faith and tradition uh, in, in churches all around the world, and that is, first and foremost, transubstantiation, consubstantiation, receptionism, and memorialism. Uh, and can anyone guess what we believe here at the church? All right, see, so this is a good thing why I'm teaching this, uh, I'm teaching this doctrine uh, to our church this morning. Let's look at transubstantiation. Transubstantiation, first and foremost, that word is comprised of two things. Trans, meaning to change or to transform, and substantiation is the substance of something, meaning the substance of something. So putting that two together, it simply means the change of a substance, the change of the substance of something. This is the view of the Catholic and Orthodox Church. It says in the Council of Trent, or they record in the Council of Trent, 1545, by the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance. So picture the bread and wine that we, or grape juice that we participate in, or practice or, um, in communion every, every, uh, one, every first weekend of the month. They believe that there is a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ, our Lord, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change... This change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. This goes actually goes back further than the 1500s. It goes back all the way to the 1200s. Um, and the idea is that when priests would gather the elements, they consecrated the bread and the wine, despite it still looking like bread and wine, its substance miraculously transforms into the literal and physical body of Jesus Christ. That's transubstantiation. That's a Catholic belief. That's also, again, the Orthodox Church's belief. I remember when I was in school, I had to visit an Orthodox Church just to see how their traditions was like. And I remember sitting in, uh, there's that big uh, Egyptian Coptic church, Orthodox church on Eglinton here in Mississauga. I visited that church and I had, the service was an uh, Egyptian, unfortunately, so I couldn't understand it, but I had someone translating for me what they were saying. And she was going through the entire service with me and she got to the point where she said, and this is the time when the priest goes to the back room and an angel comes down and blesses the Eucharist, the elements, and then the elements become the actual and literal physical body of Jesus Christ. That's what they believe. That's transubstantiation. Now, the problem, as you can probably maybe sort of surmise from all of this, is that in the 1500s, and when this was very much propagating, and even now in some countries, the elements themselves, the Eucharist, became an object of worship. The body, or the bread, 
because it became physically the body of Christ and the wine became, the phys- according to them, the physical blood of Christ, people started worshiping those elements instead of Christ himself. In fact, in the medieval times, people would even, instead of eating the bread, they would take it home as a trinket, as sort of a good luck charm, because they wanted to say, hey, see, Jesus is with me in this piece of bread. And of course, um, that caused a lot of, uh, a lot of trouble and, and to the point where, where priests had to hold back the elements from the parishioners, from those practicing or wanted to, be part, or wanted to partake of the communion. Now, something in all of this as well is the idea of a sacrament. A sacrament is simply a dispensation of grace, an act of grace, a work of grace. According to the Catholic Church, by partaking of the communion, by partaking of the Eucharist, they are imparting grace or even further salvation to the parishioner. In order to take the the communion, the elements, the Eucharist in the Catholic Church, you need to have confessed your sins to a priest first. And having confessed your sins to a priest, now you can go to the priest as well and take the bread and take the wine as to affirm your salvation, as as to receive your salvation. And again, it's only for those who have confessed their sins. That's transubstantiation. That's the view of the Catholic Church. Again, we can read up more on that and and how they practice that even today. Consubstantiation is is actually the view that Martin Luther and Lutherans hold even today. And uh, although they actually wouldn't say that they believe in consubstantiation, This word, the idea of consubstantiation, substantiation meaning, again, the substance of, con simply meaning with, right? It's a prefix meaning with. So something is being added to the substance or something is with the substance of something. Martin Luther's whole claim to this idea or this doctrine is the idea of sacramental union. The presence of Christ was added to the elements, the bread and the wine, Rather than the elements becoming completely and physically the body and blood of Christ, Martin Luther argued that paradoxically, similar to how Christ is fully God and fully man, the elements is fully bread and wine and fully Jesus Christ at the same time. That's what he means by the sacramental union. And at the same time, the idea of his view of the sacrament wasn't an act of imparting or, or, or wasn't an act of imparting salvation to a parishioner, but rather imparting the forgiveness of sins. So instead of having to go to a priest to confess your sins, by partaking of this elements, by partaking of the elements, you are, you are receiving forgiveness of sins by partaking of the, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ in that, that communion in the Eucharist. That's consubstantiation. Right? Receptionism is the view that is held by John Calvin and our good Presbyterian friends. Their view is that Christ is not physically present in the elements, not physically present in the the elements, but he is spiritually present in the elements. It's not a means of salvation, but to spiritually partake of the, the Savior in a symbolic Wait, that's their view. Similar to how baptism for us is our outward expression of our inward conviction, us dying with Christ on the cross. For Presbyterians and John Calvin, communion or their Eucharist was a symbolic way of saying, I am receiving Christ. I am, I am by faith, I'm, I'm receiving the Savior into, uh, into my body or being one with him by partaking in these elements. That's receptionism. Memorialism is what we adhere by as Baptists it's, and what other evangelicals uh, uh, view as well when it comes to communion. Memorialism was, was propagated primarily by a reformer named Ulrich Zwingli. Ulrich, uh, Ulrich Zwingli. And uh, it wasn't a, an innovative view on the Eucharist or on communion because really in his time and during the Reformation, not all priests actually believed in transubstantiation. They were already starting to try to consider what communion really meant because of the sort of the, the, the legalism the, and the abominations that the, the, the Catholic Church was committing as a result of this doctrine of transubstantiation. 
And as well as some of the Anabaptists, which is sort of the forerunner of the Baptists today, this is something that they believed as well. So Zwingli's view on communion was first and foremost that it was still a sacred thing because a sacred rite or tradition because Jesus himself, the high priest, is the one who instituted the, the ordinance back at the Lord's Supper. They also believe that communion bears, uh, it bears witness to something that has already accomplished, i.e. the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, they, he believed or, or he propagated that the, that the act of partaking of the elements is is replacing the act of sacrifice because in the idea of transubstantiation, even consubstantiation, there is an idea that the priests were sacrificing once again the body of Christ and the blood of Christ so that the believer, the parishioner in front of them would be reconciled to God. In addition to that, Zwingli propagated that the Lord's Supper is, uh, is valuable because of what it signifies. Again, that communion is the gathering of believers to to identify with the death of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ on the, on the cross. It, it also propagates uh, the, the strengthening of one's faith, of each other's faith, as it looks not just to what has been accomplished on the cross, but also forward to the future as a result of, of when Christ will return and the, the marriage supper of the Lamb that we mentioned earlier. Now, ultimately, what Zwingli, what Zwingli argued is that communion also was a way of believers coming together and sort of like pledging their, their oath to Jesus. It was, a it was a declaration that we are Christians, we are believers, we are set apart from the world, and that is because we have come together to partake of the body of Christ and the, and the blood of Christ through these elements in, in a, a symbolic way, in a memorial way. Now, Really, I've mentioned these four, right? We, we have um, transubstantiation, consubstantiation, receptionism, memorialism. If you want to read up on those things more, you can. I hope you guys, at least you have an idea of the four views of, of communion. But really, where, what it comes down to is interpretation of the institution of the Lord's table. Why these, there's so many differences here really is how people have interpreted the institution of the Lord's table. And where we get that institution from is in Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 to 29. Let's read this really quick here. It says, in Matthew chapter 26, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples. and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, to, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, where the differences lie is because transubstantiation, the view of the Catholic Church, takes this passage literally. When they say that when Jesus is saying that this is my body, this is my blood, he is literally saying this is my body and this physically is my blood to his disciples. And in consubstantiation, what Martin Luther believed and sort of what the receptionists believe, they, they are simply taking the doctrine of transubstantiation and and modifying it, or rather even correcting it, so that it doesn't propagate this idea of uh, sort of a works-based salvation, that if you take this, this, this piece of bread, if you drink of this cup, that's how you become saved. These other views are sort of just trying to correct and, and, and rectify that, that view, that doctrine of the Catholic Church. However, memorialism, the view that we hold to adhere to, uh, is biblical. <laughs> uh, it, is, is, it, is the, it is not looking at it literally, it is looking at the statement of Christ figuratively. It's, and in addition to that, it seeks the full counsel of Scripture, not tradition, to interpret what the Lord's table actually means. And really, the idea of transubstantiation, consubstantiation, is easily refuted when you look at God's Word. First and foremost, it's very clear in God's Word that cannibalism is wrong. Everyone agree? Cannibalism, bad? Yes? I don't hear an amen to this. 
This should be a, a, a normal thing that, that everybody knows. Cannibalism is bad. In fact, throughout Scripture, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, Jeremiah 19, Lamentations chapter 2, chapter 4, Ezekiel chapter 5, whenever it refers to cannibalism, it's always referring to the state of humanity when they are completely depraved, completely pagan, completely apostate from the word, the word and will of God. It's actually a curse of God on a nation when they fall into cannibalism. And we see that throughout the history of Israel. There's uh, great curses and prophecies towards the, the nation of Israel because as a result of their apostasy from God, uh, as a result of their idol worship, they end up uh, having to eat their young in their, in their, in their history uh, as a nation. So cannibalism is wrong even if, if the body that, or the blood that you are partaking in is the Son of God. Right? You have to understand that. And I, I don't think in, in any sense God would say in his word, this is bad, but if it's my body, it's okay. No sense. No, that there's, that, that's, irrational, uh, that's an irrational uh, reasoning whatsoever in, in, in Scripture. So that's the first, first way you can refute it. Cannibalism is bad. Secondly, Jesus regularly spoke figuratively about himself to convey salvific truths. The great I am statements in the Gospel of John, when Jesus says, I am the door, was he actually a door? No, right? Again, cannibalism, cannibalism is bad. Everyone should know that. Jesus was not a door. Everyone should know that. When Jesus said, I am the vine, was he actually a piece of plant? No, obviously not. When it says that Jesus was a shepherd, no, he wasn't actually a shepherd, but through his salvific purpose and work, he resembled one. His acts resembled one. His, his acts resembled that of a door that lets the sheep through. His, his acts resembled that of a vine that sustains the church. It's all figurative language. And the same with the bread and wine. Jesus is speaking figurative, figuratively to his disciples. And we even see example of this specifically concerning the bread and wine in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6 is the account of the feeding of the 5,000, if you know that story from our study in the Gospel of John. Jesus feeds this whole mass, 5,000 people, 5,000 plus people. And after that great miracle, the people follow him because they want more food. They want more free food. And what John, or rather, what Jesus says to the crowd, John chapter 6, verse 35, he says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Again, is he speaking literally that he's bread? No, he's not. It's figurative language. But then he tries to make it even more practical, believable to the Jewish audience that he has. In verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's still speaking figuratively. It's the same constant uh, notion, same thought throughout this entire passage. Then the response of the Jews is what any normal person would have. It says, eat his flesh. What are you talking about? He's getting us to try to eat his flesh, drink his blood. Again, cannibalism, bad. If you're going to take anything away from the sermon, cannibalism is bad. But then Jesus doubles down on his statements. He says in verse 53, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now Catholics and anyone who believes in transubstantiation will argue, see, Jesus is saying very literally that we need to eat his flesh and drink his blood for salvation. Listen, all of that thing, that, everything that Jesus just talked about, all his examples was already prefaced in the first part, verse 35, when he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. 
And whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. The idea of eating and drinking, part, uh, consuming Christ, in Christ's own words, is the act of believing in him. Believing in him, depending, relying on him. And even that, that tangible example of the bread from heaven, the manna in the wilderness that he gives, the idea there is that just how the Israelites had no food to eat to keep them alive in the wilderness, and how they had to wholly depend on God's provision for sustenance so that they could physically live, one must wholly depend and rely in Christ by faith to live and have eternal life and not experience death. Again, it's all figurative, and those who look on it on a, as, a, as, as a literal sense actually is shown in our passage as those who are, who are lacking faith, those who are unbelievers. Now, sort of credit where credit is due, Calvin and, and our Presbyterian buddies, right, they stand on this. This is what they are, their idea on communion, that they are spiritually partaking of Christ by faith. It's, not, it's, 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 the same, it's the same motivation here. Again, it's the same motivation as baptism. They're not looking at it as a means from, of salvation, but still they recognize that Jesus is speaking figuratively, and to take Christ in is... is is, is doing so by faith and not some actual act of eating bread or drinking wine. Now, furthermore, to refute this idea of transubstantiation, let's go back to the actual institution of it in the Lord's table. The context of the Lord's table, or rather the Last Supper, further proves that, it, that Jesus meant all of this figuratively. Because culturally and historically, the Last Supper was actually the Jewish feast or the Jewish meal called the Passover Seder. The Jewish Passover meal that they would eat together as a family, as a, as a community during the Passover season. Now, in that Passover meal, the, the, the Passover Seder that, Jew, that, that the, the Jews still celebrate today, uh, share a meal together today, they are, there are very specific elements in that meal. Firstly, the, the bread that is being broken, that Jesus breaks in our, in our passage at the Last Supper, was something called the yeshats. It's, it's, a, it's a breaking of unleavened bread. And it's part of this whole ceremony that the, that the Jews partake in, in, the, in the Passover Seder. This unleavened bread was meant to symbolize the, 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 the freedom from sin. Because as Jesus sort of preached in throughout the Gospels, he said that, or he, he, he equated leaven or yeast in bread to sin. And the bread that they partook in during the Passover Seder was, uh, was unleavened bread. So by partaking of the bread that represents the body of Christ, it's really painting the, the, the picture, a figurative picture of us partaking in Christ's righteousness. The idea of imputation of where Christ imputes his righteousness on sinful people. That's the, that's the, the, the context of the, the bread. In the same way, the cup that Jesus gives, the, the cup that Jesus drinks and gives to his disciples was the third cup in the Passover Seder, which the Jews call the cup of redemption. The cup of redemption symbolizing that the, the wine that would, that would ultimately free people from uh, bondage. And in, in Jesus' context, free people from sin. It's why Paul says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Again, it's pointing back to that cup of redemption that as we partake it, as we believe in Christ, we are drinking the, 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 the redemptive cup, freedom from sin. See, in the institution of the Lord's table, Jesus was, giving new, Jesus, Jesus was giving a new covenant significance to an old covenant ordinance. That's what's happening at the Last Supper. He's giving new significance to the practice of the Passover Seder that the Jews celebrate every year that really pointed to his coming. So, in summary, if we want to try to understand where we stand, what we believe, and where we stand on Scripture about the, these things... Uh, a summary of why we refute transubstantiation, consubstantiation, is first and foremost, 
Cannibalism bad? Jesus speaking figuratively, eating of his flesh and blood, as we see in scripture, really means to have faith, to depend on him. And again, it it is the idea of of Christ repurposing old covenant ordinances with new covenant significance. Now, underlying all of that, and I think this is very crucial and sort of gets missed in in the conversation as well. We also believe in sola fide, meaning by faith alone can one be saved. Sola fide. There's no sacrament, there's no dispensation from man, no act of no work that we can partake in that can save us. It is only faith through Jesus Christ. A priest cannot dispense that grace. A priest cannot dispense that forgiveness of sin or that, that salvation. Only God can. It's only by faith alone. All of that to say, these are the reasons why we refute any of those other uh, doctrines or those other ideas. So now what does this mean for us? Let's get to the preaching portion. There's some application here. What is the significance of the Lord's table for us today as we practice it? Uh, what, are, what should be our attitudes for it? Why, well, first of all, why should we continue to propagate the Lord's table or rather celebrate the Lord's table? First and foremost, it, it propagates unity. It propagates unity. In our main passage in 1 Corinthians, again, Paul is rebuking the Corinthian church because these believers are gathering together and instead of sharing in this meal together, they're doing their own thing. He's saying this, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, verse 21. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you have no houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. Paul's rebuke was meant to bring believers together, make them distinct from the rest of the world by practicing and participating in this Lord's table. But what happened was communion became a point of division instead. Communion and breaking bread was an act of coming together as a local body to participate in the, 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 the sacrifice, to commemorate the sacrifice of our Savior and to commemorate the gospel of Jesus Christ that really, in fact, unites us. But Paul is saying it defeats the point. If in this act of unity, you're actually disjointed. Some of you are getting drunk while some are going hungry. Everyone's doing their own thing. Communion became disunion. Now, if you're thinking, well, thankfully, no one here, when we share meals together or when we practice the Lord's table, is getting drunk and no one is going hungry and everybody's sharing. So thankfully, we're, we're avoiding that. Well, not exactly. Because Paul's point in, in pointing out those, those sins of the Corinthian church is to point out the underlying issue in the midst of it all, and that is of indifference. Indifference. No one cared. No one cared. No one cared that somebody in their church was getting drunk during their service. No one cared that somebody in their church was going hungry. They say that hatred is the opposite of love. It's not. It's actually indifference when you lack any sense of emotion towards an individual. And for a community that is meant to be united and grounded in love, indifference is cancerous. The, the, the call here for us in our modern day context is similar to last week. It's to care for one another. One another. It's to love one another. It's to, to, to fellowship one another, meaning be, be, to, to participate in one another's lives. To echo the sentiments from last week, every aspect of the church, every aspect of ministry in the church is to build up the body in love. So understand, communion is not just for you. It's not just so that you can participate in the Lord's table. The notion that Paul is getting is that we need to ensure that others can participate in the Lord's table. That others are able to participate as well. If a brother is sinning, you need to lovingly correct them so that they, to, to ensure that they can partake of the Lord's table, so that they would repent and be able to partake of communion. 
If a sister is feeling unworthy to partake, you need to encourage them, demonstrate God's grace and love to them so that they feel that they can approach the table and partake of it. Don't be indifferent to the needs of your brothers and sisters. Otherwise, again, it defeats the the opportunity for unity and communion. It's also why I believe it was practiced daily or even weekly in the early church because it was an opportunity every time to come together, to unite together as a body of Christ and to propagate unity by the constant reminder of, hey, hey, brother or sister, you need to partake of this. You, you, you are part of the church. If you have sin in your life, repent. Hey, sister, if, if, if you have a need, come together with us. Share a meal together with us. Be united to the body of Christ. In this, in this coming together on a daily basis or on even a weekly basis, the church was giving opportunity for one another to, to unite together and build relationships around the table of the Lord around breaking of bread. They weren't allowing for any sense of indifference, which, again, is something that we can easily fall prey to. Whenever we partake of the table that on that, the first weekend of the month, ask yourself, do you consider others? Or are you just thinking about yourself as you approach the table? Do I feel okay to take part of this or... Am I good to partake of this? And that's a good thing. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the purpose, as we see in our passage, is to make sure that you also, you also care for the fact that your brother can or cannot partake of the table. Or there's an issue with your sister that, that prevents them from partaking of the table. You need to care, not be indifferent towards their situation. That's the breaking of bread. It, 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 the breaking of bread propagates unity. Secondly, it proclaims the gospel. Verse 23, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after his supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The word here for remembrance is anamnesis. Anamnesis. I put it up on the screen for us this morning as well so you can see it. Anamnesis. Everyone say anamnesis. And it really remains remembrance or a deliberate recollection or a, even a memorial of something. Again, it's further proof that the Lord's table is meant to be symbolic, a memorial, uh, why it's called, we're, we're called memorialists, and it's, it's uh, another reason why we, 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 or rather the early church practiced communion on a daily or a weekly basis, because it proclaimed the gospel on a weekly basis, on a daily basis. It served as a perpetual reminder of what Christ accomplished. As Zwingli would put it, 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 it served to, to, to demonstrate the sacrifice that was accomplished, not a, a sacrifice that is necessary once again. Now, this memorializing of the cross is a good thing. This recollection of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of what Christ did on the cross, the suffering that he, he, he experienced on the cross is a good thing because we are forgetful creatures. We are forgetful Creatures. Anyone have trouble with memory here? Right? My wife at home, listen, like it's every day, every day. Where's my phone? Literally, like eight days out of seven days of the week. Like it's, it's literally, where's my phone? Where's my phone? It's a perpetual reminder that I'm married, that, that I have to look for her phone every day. And similarly, we all, all of us human beings, often suffer from spiritual amnesia. The idea is, if you've ever read the Old Testament and you see the story of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, which I believe is a metaphor for humanity, it's so interesting because despite seeing the wonders of God in Egypt, to the plagues that God enacted in Egypt, God showing and demonstrating His his power and His greatness, 
The Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, questioning the power of God, the will of God, the purpose of God, the timing of God, to a point where they were building golden calves and, and rebelling against God and doubting whether or not he can, he can lead them to victory to the promised land. In the same vein, the cross of Christ is a greater wonder than the plagues of Egypt where the Son of God in love endured the lashes of sinful man and nails being driven to his hands and feet and suffering the humiliating death of a common criminal in order to freely give life for unworthy sinners as to, and, and impute his righteousness, his righteousness and forgive our sins. Yet we are so quick to forget our identity in Christ. We are so quick to wallow in the guilt and shame of our sin. We are so quick to run back to former lifestyles and mentalities. We are so quick to revert back to the works-based religion and mentality of self-righteous pride. We are so quick to doubt the legitimacy of our salvation. We are so quick to replace the, the, the living word of God with the word of and opinions of sinful man. We are so quick to, to replace the worship of the living God to the idols of wood and stone and money and, obs and obsessions. We are so quick to listen to the lies, to the rhetoric of the enemy and the word of the Savior. We're so quick to stumble around in the fear of what tomorrow holds. We are so quick to wander, to, to leave the God that we love. We are so quick to forget the gospel. The Lord's table, communion, the breaking of bread, serves as a perpetual reminder of the power of the gospel to change lives today. The power of the gospel that, that to save us, that is saving us, that is sanctifying us. Whenever we gather for communion, it is an opportunity to remind each other of these truths. That we are secured in Christ. That we are forgiven of sin. That we have been adopted by His blood. That His righteousness is upon us. In this process of keeping each other, as I mentioned, accountable and ensuring there's no sin in our, in our lives so that we can partake of the table together, we also have the opportunity through participating together to point each other to the gospel. Whenever we partake of communion, to remind each other of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I need that constant reminder. I need the constant reminder of the gospel to, reminded, to be reminded every day even that Jesus Christ has been nailed to the cross for my sins. But I have been forgiven I have been declared righteous in Jesus Christ. My hope is secured in Him. My eternity is secured in Him. That is a constant reminder that I need. I hope you need as well. The Lord's table is an opportunity to be reminded that, that we are part of a forgiven community. A united community. United by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that unity that we have, really, it, it validates and legitimizes even the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It shows to the world that Christ has accomplished something. That Christ's work on the cross is finished and has united these people. Again, I believe it's why the early church practiced communion on a daily basis, even on a weekly basis, is and if you're thinking, well, why do we do it just once a month? It's because the Bible is, is, is not prescriptive on this matter when it comes to frequency. It's just simply descriptive. It tells us what was done in the, in the historical church. And when Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, it's implying the frequency of when we partake of this table is really determined by the community, by the local body. But... For the purpose of being reminded of the gospel, I'm, I'm definitely inclined to, to partaking of it on a weekly basis. For a perpetual reminder of the gospel, a constant reminder of Christ, of what Christ accomplished on our behalf, of the imputed righteousness to us, the, and the blood that washes away and forgives us our sin. The table proclaims the gospel. Finally, as we just end here, 
why is this significant to us? How, how can we be applicable here? Because it's also a personal reminder, a personal reminder. In verse 27 of our passage, it says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, Again, this is all connected. Paul's going back to his rebuke of indifference to the local church here, their lack of care for one another and the unity of the body, or even in personally an unrepentant sin or, or a bitter heart towards a brother. He says, if, uh, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks a cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Instead of identifying and participating in that imputed righteousness that the, the, the bread symbolizes or the forgiveness of sins that the, that the wine represents, we are, in, in our failure to care for a brother or in our failure to repent of sin, we are actually identifying, participating in the sin that put Christ on the cross. That put Christ on the, on the cross in the first place. Paul says in verse 28, let a person examine himself that then as, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, without seeing the significance in, of these elements or identifying correctly with what the elements represent or what it reminds us, as well as addressing the mispractices of the church or the, the practices that, that promote disunity in the body, i.e., indifference, if we don't address those things, we don't discern those things, then we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. That is why many of you are weak and ill. Some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Again, the breaking of bread makes the church counter-cultural whenever we gather together. Because this is what we're celebrating. We are, whether daily or weekly or, or even you know, once a month, whatever it looks like, we are examining ourselves. We're holding ourselves accountable to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're holding others accountable to it as well. We are uniting across. We, we, are, we, are, we are uniting around, rather, uh, the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's what sets the church apart in the breaking of bread. Now, if you didn't catch that, this entire section of our passage is a call to examine yourself. It's a call to examine yourself. The first part was, again, to, to if there's any sin in our midst, any disunity, any indifference, deal with that. Deal with those relationships first. And then the second part is that the, these elements are meant to remind us of the gospel. And this, part, this third part here, Paul is calling to Examine yourself. Introspective. There's an introspective component to, to breaking of the breaking of bread. In addition to the promoting unity and, and proclaiming the gospel. The breaking of bread is an opportunity to check your own hearts. To see if there's any unconfessed sins. Any bitterness between you and a brother or a sister. Any unforgiveness that is being harbored that is that should not be among the people of God, among the people who, are, who have been forgiven. The call is to examine yourselves and to see those things and to deal with it at the cross of Jesus Christ, right there and then at the table. Seek forgiveness, to seek a right spirit, to, renew, to seek your mind, to, to say, have your mind renewed at the table. I think oftentimes when we approach the table, when we come around it, and we get to this portion of examining our hearts, right? We, we pause for that. And, and when, when we think of uh, maybe a sin that we committed or a lingering issue, our natural response is, well, I'm unworthy to participate. I am unable to participate in this table. I'll, I'll participate next time. I'll, I'll do communion next, next month. But you have to understand, first and foremost, right, if you ever feel unworthy, Listen, here's the truth. You are. You are unworthy. You always will and always have been unworthy, but the table serves, a, serves as a reminder that what permits us entry, what makes us worthy is not our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. 
what invites us to the table, what allows us to come to the table is partaking in Christ's righteousness, not our own. That's what the, bo- the, the bread represents, the broken body of Christ, the broken, righteous body of Christ. Of course, his shed blood that forgives us of our sins. So understand, what, whenever those thoughts arise and you feel like you are unworthy to participate at the table, the, the response is not, okay, I'll wait until next month. It should never be that. It should be, God, I am a sinner today and I'm repenting today. The response should be, God, I have a bitterness with my brother. I want to fix that right now. I want, I want to reconcile that relationship right now. It's not, let's wait. The invitation at the Lord's table is to, to come. To come and be reminded of the gospel that forgives us of our sin. To come and once again identify with the sacrifice of Christ so that we can have his righteousness and our sins would be forgiven. Communion is an opportunity to to reconcile all of that in Christ at the cross. And really, in in this whole effort of examining yourself, if you've ever questioned your salvation, if you've ever had doubts about your security, your salvation in Christ, communion, again, is an opportunity to affirm in yourself that you are indeed part of Christ. That you are, you are indeed part of the body of Christ. That your sins have been forgiven. And, you know, just to, just, to be, to, just to be clear, as per our text, the only thing that is barring someone from participating at the Lord's table is whether or not they are a believer or if they are a believer with an unrepented heart. The table is meant to be for, for believers who have sought forgiveness, whether with our brothers or sisters or with God. So the invitation, as always, is to let communion be a personal reminder, a personal reminder of what Christ has done for us, forgiveness of sins that we have in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. As we, as we close here, just going to end our time a, li- a little bit differently. We're not going to partake of communion today. We're going to wait until uh, the first weekend of, of the new month. But we are going to examine ourselves. We don't need to have the elements to examine ourselves. I think, it, again, ex- self-examination is, a, is a, something that is, is necessary for every believer on a weekly basis, even on a daily basis, to be reminded of of where we stand on the gospel, to be reminded if there's any, to see if there's any sin in our lives that we have yet to confess to God. Or maybe even bitterness in between us. So at this time, I want to give everyone here just a moment. Just a moment as a stop. And similar to the psalmist who who asked, search me, O God, and see if there's any grievous thing in me, that we would do the same this morning. I invite you this time to examine your hearts. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal any sin in your heart, anything that needs to be reconciled to the cross of Jesus Christ.
for those of you who have been with Plus Life for many, many years, one of the one of the qualities, or rather one of the things that we identified in our community as part of God's call for us to transition from a Bible study group to a local church was the desire to hold communion. The desire for everybody, our community, to partake of the Lord's table together. I pray that it would that the Lord's table would be a constant, distinctive of our church, a perpetual reminder of our unity in Christ, a perpetual reminder of the body that was broken for us, that declares us justified before a holy God, of the blood that washes us that frees us and makes us white as snow from our sins. I pray that whenever we partake of the table, it would bring us together as a community, as a church, united under the banner of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you and we thank you because it is because of your sacrifice on the cross that we can come together and be united, that we can come together and know that our sins have been forgiven. That we can come together despite our our sentiments of being unworthy and know that we are received by you. That in our repentance that our sins are forgiven. And so God, in this, just in this prayer, I, I, I pray for unity in our church. The unity that communion is meant to to strengthen and propagate. I pray, oh Lord, that you'd bind every brother and sister in this room together. That we would not be indifferent to the hurts, the struggles, the cares of our neighbor. That sincere care and love would be demonstrated in our midst. Lord, we would encourage one another, that we would edify one another. God, we would take time outside of our our busy week, even in the midst of our busy week, to break bread together, to share a meal together, just to build and edify our relationships together. Just to demonstrate to one another and to the world that we have truly been united by the blood of Jesus Christ. A bond that is greater than any other community, any other bond in the world. One that secures us together for eternity. Oh God, I pray if there's any unconfessed sins in our hearts now, if there's any bitterness towards one another, I pray that they would that they would all be surrendered at the feet of the cross and that we would seek reconciliation, that we would seek love, that we would seek sincere apologies, forgiveness, we would truly be united, oh God. God, we praise you and we thank you for what you are doing in our midst. I pray for the hearts. I pray, oh God, if there's any individual in the room who has yet to put their faith, their full reliance 
on you this day that they would do so. The gospel would be so real to them that their hearts of stone would be made into hearts of flesh and that Holy Spirit that you'd bring conviction and real faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Oh God, I pray that in all of it, you would delight in your people, that you would delight in your children as we come together around the cross of Jesus Christ in love and true community. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.